Welcome to the Clio for Teachers and Teams podcast. In this podcast, I share practical tips and tricks for implementing Clio into your organization, within your school, or in your lesson. My name is Patrick de Boer, and I'm a Clio teacher from the Netherlands, as well as a Clio teacher trainer and coach. And in this podcast, I'd like to share my ideas and experiences with you in order to get Clio on top of your mind. Have fun listening. All right, welcome to this new episode of the CLIL podcast, um, CLIL for Teachers and Teams, and this is a special one. Normally, I only talk, well, um, on my own, I talk about my experiences, I share my thoughts, uh, and this is a special one because there's going to be an interview version, um, and I'll be interviewing Phil Ball, who will be introducing himself in a minute, and I actually expect a lot of you to know him already because, you know, he's been around. Um, uh, and... Um, we will be talking about tasks and etc. later on, but more on that in a minute. And before I um, start asking questions, and I don't want this to be, you know, an interview style where I will just fire questions. It will pre- probably be more conversation-like, knowing what our conversations are always like. Um, but before we start, Phil, can you please introduce yourself um, very briefly? Yeah, I- I've been around. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that positively, okay? Yes. Oh, sure, yeah, that's definitely the way I meant it. <laughs> Just a few years. Well, that that and and within that being around, of course, it's been in Clil. So I, I'm I, yeah, my name's Phil Ball, and I, I I'm based here in the in the Basque Country in the north of Spain uh, in San Sebastián, uh, and I've been here for over thirty years. And uh, I you know I worked in when I originally began, I worked in <clears throat> standard English state education in a comprehensive school. I I went abroad and. Um, did my EFL time and uh, and um, became interested in CLIL through a series of accidents, I think, but it certainly uh, I got involved with it around the time that the, the acronym was born in the, in the mid-90s and and I've worked full-time in it ever since up here in the Basque Country. So I, I, I'm based here as a as a trainer and a materials writer, but, uh, you know, I, I sort of travel around as well. Uh, I sort of, I get around a little bit, yeah, now consulting, doing consulting work for those people who, who wish some consultation, wish for some consultation. Yeah. Yeah. And thanks for asking me, of course, Patrick. Yeah. We're glad to have you. Um, um, well, as I said, I think people should know your name already because you published a book, um, uh, put the killer to practice with a few co-authors. Um, can you maybe, very briefly, and I know we didn't prepare this, um, share why you wanted to write that book. And we'll talk about tasks after this. But, but this is something that I think is quite a task to set yourself writing a book on Clil. So there must be a reason you wanted to do this. Can you maybe share a bit about that before we move on to the more practical stuff? Yeah, sure. Um, it was published in 2016 in the end, although uh, I'd been... Um, I'd been bullying. <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> I'd been bullying Oxford University Press for quite a few years before that, and I'd been bullying them into letting me or me, John Clegg and Keith Kelly, who I was working with, you know, still still do work with them um, at the time. And uh, basically, a quick answer would be that we felt that, you know, by the 2010-ish around then, I think, you know, the acronym had been around for 15 years and we felt that um, there was a kind of parameter drift, if that's a good phrase for you. In other, in other words, we thought that the parameters of CLIL had not been, in the end, had not been defined clearly enough. 
uh, because people were still saying, you know, what is CLIL? You know, and 15 years after the acronym had come out, I think that it should have been clearer. And so um, that's no that's no criticism of people who had written about CLIL before that. But I think that CLIL was just too many things, an umbrella term for this, that and the other. And so it was beginning, I thought, to drift into vagueness. And we thought we'd try to write a book which was which A, define the parameters and B, defined them by being both academic and practical at the same time. You know, I think, I, I hope the people who've read the book, you know, do feel that. It, 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 from the reviews it got, that did seem to happen. So so I think um, I think we did. But, you know, the parameters are still shifting a bit, I think, and uh, that might come into the di today's discussion. But that was certainly the reason why we, we got together and wrote it, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I think it's an evolving thing. Um, also because more people start using it to get implemented in different um, environments and it start, keeps evolving ever, forever. Um, there's a reason it's been around for a while and I think it also has to do with the fact that it can be implemented in many different ways. Um, yeah, I, I remember when I read your book, there were a lot of practical things in there, doing the dozen and those kind of activities were in there. Um, and I also remember reading about the topic that I want to focus a bit more on today about the tasks um, in a sequence, etc. Um, but I remember reading it and just skimming through it and then moving to the next page and not really realizing what you meant with it until we met for the first time, I think, um, uh, during a, a film conference in the Netherlands. Um, and you did a workshop on this. Mm. And you shared, well, actually some materials you wrote in combination with a few copies from your book. And that made it, you know, come alive for me. Then I, then I realized what you meant with this. And um, for me, that really meant that I had to shift from my way of thinking of how I organized the CLIL lesson. Um, so I, that's something I'd like to focus on today because it had quite an impact on me and I think it can have impact on many people, especially because, you know, there's the book, but there's also the explanation behind it and the examples, et cetera, that mm -hmm. might make it a bit more clear even not saying it's not clear but you know what I mean um so before we start can you maybe talk a bit more about tasks activities and sequence and then we'll talk about the clue aspect of that but but yeah. what those phrases are often used and in, in, in not always in a way that makes sense well it, it's interesting that you say about that that you noticed about the, the emphasis on sequence in the book and uh, because you're a maths teacher, <laughs> you know, so you you come from a maths background, uh, a subject teaching background, and, and I come from, you know, the language background, if you like. So we've gone, it's, it's like we've met in the middle somewhere, you know, you've come from, you've come from a subject teaching hard kill background and I've come from, if you like, a, a softer one, but I've tried to get harder and you try to get softer kind of thing, you know. So that, what I noticed when I started, you know, working in CLIL, seriously was that was that that it was the concept of sequence which distinguished very clearly between you know what we call elt let's say language education and, and, and subject education it seems to me to, that there was a big gap between those things and what i meant by that was or what i mean by that is that language teachers don't think sequentially um they're not trained to think sequentially and perhaps perhaps uh, it's both a strength and a weakness of language teaching, possibly. But if you look at a standard language textbook, I, I, it was all my big joke. But, but you know, the chapters, there's 12 chapters in the language textbook, and each one has about 
four or five pages uh, and there's nothing there's no culmination of those four or five pages at the end there might be a little task inverted commas we'll get on to that in a moment but but uh, it's a series of exercises or activities which are vaguely connected to the theme of the chapter which might be as i you know typically amazon rainforest britney spears my favorite pop star or whatever well you know it's what david willies who wrote of course i wrote about the task-based approach he called it pop vox content you know pop vox content and he was critical of that himself and you know the willises who wrote well they wrote the task-based learning book in the mid 90s but with they still had a elt approach i mean that's a very famous book the willises book Jane Willies, actually. Um, it's a very famous book about the task-based approach, uh, task-based learning, and yet I still think it it's insufficient because because they don't talk about sequences, <laughs> because they're they're looking at it, it from a from a language teaching perspective. You know, te language teachers don't seem to need them, but once you look at content, I mean, uh, maths it may be that it's slightly less the case because it's very process-led. But if you're a geography teacher or a history teacher or a physics teacher, you think in sequences. You know, today we're going to start learning about um, mechanisms of blah, blah, blah you know, in physics. And it's going to take two or three weeks to do this. You know, we, it's obvious. So, so the physics teacher knows it starts here, there's a middle and there's an end, you know, in crude terms. But a language teacher doesn't think like that. Um, they, they, it's, I think it's a weakness in the, in the whole paradigm. So, so... When you look at sequences, I think it distinguishes a little bit, as you said, what it means in CLIL. So if you're going to bring content into your language lessons, then naturally it's going to take a bit longer to, to resolve whatever you're doing. So it, it becomes by default a sequence. Now, if you look at that as a language teacher, you say, ah, okay. So if it's got a middle and a, if it's got a beginning and a middle and an end, what happens in, in linguistic terms at those different stages? And once you start thinking like that, you know, then it gets interesting. <laughs> it gets interesting for a maths teacher like you, and it also gets interesting for a language teacher who, who's imported the content. It immediately becomes helpful for, for both those kinds of teachers. So that's why that's why I got kind of interested in it and tried to, I suppose, develop it a bit in the book. Yeah. I'm, I'm, what you're saying is that a language teacher in general, of course, there are language teachers who do this differently. But in general, the ones you have experience with or had experience with back then do not think in sequences. But if, you know, I only have my own experience as a math teacher, I tend to think of sequences, um, but mostly because you want to go through a certain context yes. for a certain period of time. And, and maybe maths has that even more so than other subjects. I need structure. I need to build upon the knowledge because there are certain things you need to know first before you can do the next step. Mm. Um Whereas with geography, you might, you know, if you learn about volcanoes, you don't necessarily need that information if you're going to talk about uh, not a totally different topic. Um, but it surprised me a bit that you say that English language teachers and language teachers do not think in sequences because they also build upon knowledge, right? And now I'm running into the risk that I say things that don't make sense because I'm not a grammar expert. But before you can explain a more advanced topic like, I know, present perfect or something, you need to know this more simple grammar things and, and other, you know, as, as an example. Um, so there should be a bit of a sequence there, I think. Or, well, there is. Well, well, okay. I mean, that, that's, 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 that's a very good point, but, but that's the big, that's the big lie, I think, isn't it? You know, in, in, if, in language learning, because it's not, it's not really linear. I mean, it's, it's linear in a very broad sense. 
But the thing is, you can't see the linearity. That's the word, no? Uh, <laughs> that's a new one. That's a good one, yeah. <laughs> you, can't, you can't see that linear aspect uh, as clearly as you can in mathematics, for example. No? So in maths, I remember very clearly because I wasn't very good at it. You know, it, <laughs> if you missed out on a certain concept in maths, uh, it was very cumulative. You know, in other words, it was negatively or positively cumulative. And once you'd missed out on that, that first part of, let's say, uh, the building block in mathematics, if you'd missed out on that first building block, then the second, third and fourth, you were, you were in trouble, you know, and it was very difficult to get back. You know, unless the teacher took you back to that original building block, <laughs> it might have been three years ago. You were you were, you were you were you were having problems, and in the end, I sort of gave up. You know, I, I remember it must because I'd I'd missed so many of the building blocks. I'd not understood them at those beginning of the process that I just couldn't get back to it. Uh, I don't I don't think language teaching is like that. You know, um, oh, sorry, language learning is like that. You can always get back. You know, so you know Chomsky and other. Um, I mean, there's a huge there's a huge debate still in applied linguistics about this. You know, how linear is it? Um, well, it is to some extent. You know, we know that certain things are learned before others. We know that from child development, you know, child development language. We know this. But once a child has developed in their L1 and once a person's developed in their L2, then it gets more messy. What we've what the language world has tried to do is to try to uh, clarify the messiness by creating things like Cambridge exams, you know, by creating, you know, pre-beginners, beginners, post-beginners, pre-elementary, post uh, pre elementary, pre-intermediate, -elementary, pre intermediate. Well, it all looks very neat. You know, and, and of course, all those stages that have been invented by the English language industry have been invented really as a business. And so broadly and vaguely, yes, OK, you might find that a person who has upper intermediate does have grammatical structures that a post beginner doesn't have, of course. But, you know, it's not as, as it's not as simple or it's not as clear, sorry, as, you know, let, let's say a mathematical process of building uh, is. And so it's a bit of a it's a bit of a lie, you know. So so that's why, in a sense, language teaching is not sequential. If you take a chapter in a language textbook about Britney Spears or about the Amazon rainforest or about whatever I said, then it'll be based on a particular uh, language item. You know, it'll probably be on a certain grammar. You look in the contents and it'll say a second conditional or something. And so the all the all the content in that chapter will be, if you like, the slave to that particular linguistic objective. But the next linguistic objective in the next chapter is not necessarily something that's going in some kind of vertical slope. Right. It's not, it a, really it's not a follower per se. No, I mean, language language learning just isn't like that. Where, I mean, we do know that. So language teaching and the language industry has tried to rationalize it. And of course, it has to. You know, it's a business, but it doesn't mean it's true. <laughs> so that's why language teachers are not, not used to being, let's say, conceptually sequential conceptually sequential they might be linguistically conceptual but it's but it's a bit questionable but they're certainly not conceptually you know uh, uh, linear why would they be you know why would they be yeah. there's no there's no reason for it to be like that oh, so many questions um yeah I, I i thought immediately thought oh i got three more follow-up questions but i'm afraid if we keep going this podcast will last for three hours so um <laughs> Um, let's then let's, let's let's switch to the, the topic of today, which is you know a task, activity, sequence, and the relationship between those three, mm -hmm. um, and what it means for a clear lesson. Because so far we've been talking about language learning, but of course 
there's a focus on language and subject in a field lesson. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so, so can you say something about that before I yeah. come up with a lot of follow-up questions? Yeah, because I, I, I don't think that what we've just said is in, is in any way disconnected from what the this idea of task, you know, the, well, why? Because I think sequencing is a good way of beginning the, the, the topic. Um, because if you, I was looking at, I just looked back before the talk about what, what Jane Willis wrote about a task. What is a task? And you know, she wrote a whole book about, uh, called task-based learning in 1996. And she said that it was basically a, a goal oriented activity. Okay. A goal oriented activity. But when I read that, I say, well, okay, well, what does that mean? Because, uh, <laughs> you know, what is a goal? You know, I mean, a goal is something, well, outside of footballing terms anyway. You know, what is a goal? Well, a goal can be something very superficial or it could be something very important. So obviously, if we're talking about task-oriented learning, then we would wish the goal to be something significant, huh? not just the end of the chapter like we were talking about before in EFL. So I think that there's, I, I don't want to take away the whole, I, I know what Jane Willis also meant, but looking at that as a definition, it seems to me insufficient. Uh, yeah, and I also think, sorry for interrupting, but it, it kind of suggests that if you do an activity only, it doesn't have a goal. What exactly? Um, what What's the activity a step for exactly? For me, a, a, an activity is a, a resource in a process that an activity might be a resource for a task, but the task itself is a resource for the goal that Jane Willis is talking about. So we'd need to have defined that goal before we even start. So we're going to need a sequence. So we're back to this point about sequences. <laughs> oh, good. And we do. Why are we working on this mathematical concept? Because da 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 da. You know, we're going to get to the end of the process. Da da da. You know, so it, it makes sense. So if you if you look at uh, uh, Lee Lee's uh, orientation of a task, I thought was much better, or at least more. It was it was better for me in terms of Clill. Let's say, although Lee didn't intend it for clear, Lee said four things. He said, "Okay," he said, "it's goal or it's goal orientated." He said the same as Willis, but then he added, "He said it requires interaction among learners." Okay, that's number two. Three, he said, "the interaction has to be sequenced." He says with identifiable stages. Absolutely, I totally agree with him. And four, the last one, he said, "it has to have a set of work plans." Which is maybe a bit vague, but but what I think he meant was was that it had to be situational. You know, it's a step towards resolving something. So if you've got a set of work plans, if you know, if you're building a house, you're going to have a set of work plans. I hope you know, <laughs> and that set of work plans for building the house are orientated towards finishing the house correctly, so the house stands up, doesn't fall down, and and, and fulfills its its function. You know, so a set of work plans. You know, interaction sequencing goal orientation now now what jane willis meant by goal oriented activity starts to make sense if you look at lee's four uh definitions or uh, of components if you like of, of what a task is you know now, now you now you're talking as john wayne said you know now you're talking i i, I sort of understand lee's idea much better yeah and he also introduced this sequence already as being an element of a task and not some kind of external yes. factor that you can add to it. Right. And he said, with identifiable stages, that's what I really liked. That's what attracted me to Lee's definition, which I well, I think I wrote it in the book uh, in, in chapter five or something. <laughs> I, put, <laughs> I put it in the book because I thought it was the I thought it was the best definition of task that I'd read, which 
was relevant to kill teachers, let's say, you know. That's the um that's the that's the crucial difference for me. Um I'll just I'll just add to that slightly as well. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I just went to get to get the book because I, I had holding a, up the book. Yeah, it's probably it's probably look at look at Lee in the uh, in the bibliography. You'll probably find it there. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, moving on. Um. So yeah, I'll, I'll look it up. Um. But um. Yeah. So we've got activity now, which I still think. Well, it's activity is it's like part of a task then. Yeah, for me. Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. So if activity is a single thing you do, a task is a more well defined thing and but, then the sequence is above that or is that already part of the task uh, well it's part of it i suppose or, or it perhaps right. it perhaps it's the framework let's say it's a framework within which those things fit actually a useful point here just uh, it's a funny thing but uh, a couple of days ago here at work we were having this big debate about the difference between uh, a communicative act and a communicative action. It's the kind of thing we debate about when, well, we, why we're, the framework of the debate was within uh, curriculum description because we're having to rewrite the curriculum descriptors here for uh, the Basque Country, and which is of course connected to the new reform, uh, new ref education reform that's come through Madrid. So the autonomous regions like here are having to adapt it. So, so we're, we're having this thing about what they call a communicative action that we we because we've got a a competence based framework here, so we're having this big debate. And I said, look, a communicative act is not the same as a communicative action. And so off we went. We must have been going on about two hours here. But for me, what um, what Willis is saying is 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 an act, a goal orientated activity. You know, it's like an act. Well, what's a communicative act? Well, it could be anything. I could be walking down the street and someone says to me. Hi, Phil. And I say, hi, how are you doing? Fine. And we continue walking our separate ways. That is a communicative act. <laughs> but it doesn't require, well, it requires interaction, but it's minimal, you know. It's not in an educational framework, I know. But it's it's a minimal pragmatic act, you know. Someone says, hi, Phil, how are you doing? I say, fine. And we carry on, you know. But a communicative action needs to be something else. We would stop. If someone stops me in the street and says, excuse me, I'm looking for the hotel, uh, the NH hotel here in Amsterdam. Could you help me find it? Well, I'm going to have to make a various, a variety of decisions before I open my mouth, particularly if I'm speaking in a second language or I recognize the speaker to be a second language or not the same language speaker as me. Although all the decisions I make, because I do know where the hotel is, now, we could start to define that as a communicative action. And we could say, what's the difference between hi, I'm fine, and that? You know? And once you start putting the action into educational terms, you start to see what I think Lee meant. You know, this interaction, but it's significant interaction. It's got a goal. I want that person to get to the hotel. <laughs> you know, when I say I'm fine, it's just kind of I want to carry on walking. But if I want to really help that person to get to the hotel, then I've got to do a series of things in my communicative actions that will help that person. I might even just say, hey, come along with me, because <laughs> it's not very far. But, you know, we could define all those things as, as an action. And so I, it's an interesting uh, distinction and definition. And I think that a communicative action is much more related to task-based education than it is to, let's say, non-task-based education if uh, if we can you know perhaps yeah. 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 yeah and yeah. um uh, i also 
if I heard it correctly, it also has more to do with intention because then, then in an action, you really deliberately think about what's going to be my response. Whereas with, with an act, it sounds like it's more of an immediate response, maybe without a deliberate thought process behind it. Well, Lee says, a set of work plans. Uh, uh, but what I think, what I added in the book was, I said, okay, it's a step of work plans, but it's these are steps towards resolving something. So in my kind of spontaneous thing there, to resolve it would be to make it clear to that person where the hotel is or even to take them along, you know. But in a in a more complex situation, in an educational framework, you'd say, right, here we know. we Let's look at this situation. I mean, situation-based uh, you know, uh, situation-based uh, education is very much what you've got in the Netherlands, and we've got it here now, and it's developing. And so, once you once you make that clear in a curriculum, well, whoa, you know, we've got to think about how we do this. You know, and and, and language teachers are not are not are not exceptions. So, if language teachers are doing clear, it's much easier for them to work in situational-based frameworks. A situation is something to resolve. How we're going to resolve it? We need steps. We need to interact. We need to use language, certain types of language, blah, 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 blah. It's much more interesting and much more fulfilling and much more sequenced, again, than that, you know, EFL textbook, which I keep coming back and criticizing. But, you know, there we go. <laughs> That's just me. Yeah. And I, I, get, I, I get your point of there. Yeah. If we then would translate that to the field classroom, you've got your sequent tasks so you think about okay my learning objectives for this chapter are this my learning mm -hmm. objectives for this lesson are this yeah and i'm gonna do these tasks in order to um get to that learning objective i'm gonna keep an eye on both the linguistic and the um, conceptual ideas here because i'm a subject teacher or a language teacher but i'm assuming from my point of perspective i'm a subject teacher teaching through a second language but there's a lot of things that i need to think of um so so doesn't that make it a whole very a lot of work to to do this or is it ever am i overcomplicating well i think that you know i think teachers in general have a lot of things to do i mean uh, what what helps teachers i think is to is to give them a framework that makes sense to them you know so i i i if you if you talk about sequences and tasks if you talk about tasks you say right the best thing with a task if it's going to last for, if it's going to be a culmination of, let's say, three weeks' work, the best thing with a task is to tell the kids at the beginning what they're going to do at the end, <laughs> which, again, doesn't happen in a more linear philosophy. In a more linear philosophy, it's, okay, let's start here, and we're just going to progress, and at the end we'll do something, but the kids don't know what it is. I mean, that's that was my educational experience as a kid. I had no idea what was going to happen at the end of a sequence, even though we did, we did work sequentially, I suppose, at school. But, uh, you know, so, you know, we go back to, you know, uh, um, what's what they called uh, Zarobe and uh, um, uh, the Catalan writers? I've forgotten their name now. Uh, Ruiz, Ruiz and Zarobe. Yeah? I mean, they were writing in the nineties about backward planning, you know. And so again, that's something I took on very soon when I started writing materials, you know, seriously in Kill. I took on this backward planning idea, and again, now, now you'll notice it's coming out in curricula. It's coming out in curricula uh, discussion at last, you know. So. What we're going to do at the end? Well, if you if the kids know what they're going to do at the end, uh, as you say, Patrick, then all the steps to get to the end make sense. You know, they make sense, and so all the interaction that kids do if they're if they're solving a problem uh, become orientated towards that end goal. You know, the goal that Willis talked about. But you know, did Willis say 
I think she did actually, to be fair. I think Willis did also talk about about backward planning, so I'll, I'll, I'll be fair to her there. But but um, you see what I mean. So uh, um, it's obvious that that for a language teacher, the beginning of a sequence for three weeks to get to this end goal, which might be quite complex, it might require a lot of language, it might require a lot of uh, procedure. You know, um, it's obvious that at the beginning of the sequence, it's going to be linguistically lighter than it will be in the middle and at the end. It's such an obvious thing, but no one ever, no one ever says it. You know. <laughs> So it's the same for a math teacher for me. The, the language that a math teacher is using at the beginning of sequence is academically and technically lighter than it's going to be when they get to the end. And the math teacher can expect the student, how did you solve that problem? Can expect the student to be using, you know, what we call CALP, you know, the academic language. Mm -hmm. the, the, the teacher can expect the student to produce some of it at the end, but perhaps not at the beginning. So that's no, I, agree with, I agree with you there. The, the producing element, I agree with you because it's all new to them. But from a student perspective, I also think that the beginning of the chapter might actually be linguistically harder because then they encounter new phrases that okay. they will be using that chapter. Yeah. So you will have to implement more scaffolding, etc. So maybe, yeah, when it comes to student production, definitely there will be more help at the end. Hmm. But focus on the focusing on that language, and, and from a student perspective, uh, yeah. difficulty-wise, I think the start of the chapter might actually be more challenging. That's a well, that's a very interesting. Well, that's a very interesting point, and and I think you've used the word scaffold. I always wonder what you mean with interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I, I I I hate to be boring here, but but <laughs> but you know, you're 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 allowing you're allowing me to get in my three dimensions, aren't you? And <laughs> but I mean, it's it's so obvious that it's helpful to teachers because. You're you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it it might depend, of course, on the level of cognition that we're talking about. But you know, at university, the beginning of a sequence in a university course might just be as equally complex as the middle and the end. You're absolutely right. You know, maybe it's more of a sort of vertical cognitive thing. But yeah, okay. So uh, if but if a teacher's aware of that, Patrick, if a teacher is aware of that, then as you say, that they they would also be very careful to scaffold and support. The, the beginning of the sequence, let's say the orientation period of the sequence, the orientation period could last for five minutes or it could last for five hours, you know, depending on the length of the sequence. Um, so the scaffolding, what, I mean, that's what the ZPD is about, isn't it? I mean, the scaffolding is taken away. So as the middle of the sequence starts to emerge, perhaps the, the, the teacher scaffolding starts to go into the background and you put the emphasis on the on the kids. So the kids are working together more, you know? The kids are perhaps working together on the problem more, resolving it in order to get to that end part when they start using the language themselves. So yeah, you're absolutely right. So the, you can't just talk about the language in isolation, which, you know, we didn't, which I've never done, you know? It's always connected to, Procedure where you and, and scaffolding is procedure, surely. You know, what scaffolding am I going to put in place at this point and how am I going to do it? You know, and for what for what particular linguistic reasons? Okay, of course it's linguistic as well. So sure, that's a very good point. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um <laughs> yeah, I wrote down three more questions. Um, but I also note that we are at our 30-minute cap already. Um okay. <laughs> so that's me sorry <laughs> no yeah that, that, that's you know we kind of agreed beforehand that we didn't want it to last too long um i think we can fill the like six more episodes like this if we want to um, yeah. but can i ask you um well to, to to maybe i saw that you also took some notes yourself is there something you mentioned your your three um 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 your, your model 
Uh, is there something you'd like to share to finish up what we've been talking about, task sequences and maybe learning objectives as well? Is just to finish up what yeah. we've been talking about, something that you say, well, that's that's worthwhile sharing. Sure. Okay. Thanks. Well. Well. I. I. I well. We. We also used the. Used it to kind of, as, as the as the, if you like the the conceit, the main conceit of the uh, putting clinical into practice book that that there are basically three dimensions. If you forget about attitudes, and the dimensions are linguistic, they're procedural, how you do things, and and they're conceptual. You know, the what, if you like. So, so the language itself is content, I suppose. Um. But um. What and what we said was that at any point in a class, let's say, you know, you might see the volume of one of those dimensions being turned up, particularly by kill teachers, or what, but by any teacher really. It's just that they're not aware of it if unless they're doing kill. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, a maths teacher might get much more concerned with the language of maths at some point because the kids don't understand the word or what it means. You know, hypotenuse, what is it? You know, hypotenuse is this. Well, you're turning up the linguistic dimension. No? But if you're just demonstrating that or you're doing it, it's procedural. And I, I kind of liked this idea and teachers seem to respond to it. You know, the concept, hypotenuse, angle, da-da-da. You know? How do you do it and and how, how would you define it or help to define it? So, again, if you put that into a task and a sequence, then the teacher thinks, okay, well, at a certain point in the sequence, it's probably going to, I'm probably going to have to, you know, define that word, or there might be some discussion about that word. Or in a longer sequence, you know, there might be discussions about this, this, this academic language that's emerging. So that that's all really. And so what I meant was that given that linguistic, that's a linguistic consideration for a subject teacher. If we say, look, you know, it's going to get language heavy at this point, what are you going to do about it? Then the other dimension comes in, the procedural dimension. You know, are you going to play a game? Are you going to give them a quiz? Are you going to do a kahoot? Are you going to give them a test? You know, are you going to put them together and debate something? What are you going to do? You know? <laughs> yeah. So as soon as you put it in those terms, procedural, conceptual, linguistic, turning up, turning down the volume, till teachers or teachers working in a second language go, hey, okay, that's true. Let me let me think more carefully about that. That's all. That's all I meant by that. And but hey, it's become it's become the way that I certainly write materials and the way that I uh, I sequence the materials to come back to that point. And what I really like about this this model is that you can also really easily determine why certain students are challenged during certain moments in a lesson or during a sequence. Because if you look at it at introducing a new concept. I sometimes see teachers introducing rather linguistically difficult things using activities in class or tasks um, that are require some explanation with difficult concepts. And I'm like, yeah, I, I understand why students find this tricky. And then using this model, you can easily say, okay, so, so let's tune, tune down one or two sliders because that's also the visual you're using your book, sliders. Yeah. Um, so if you tune down one or two sliders, let's focus on one, one at a time. And then gradually start raising them. And that makes a lot of sense because then teacher, okay, so if if I want to introduce something language heavy, if you will, um, let's tune down how difficult I make it, or you know, or the other way around. If it's gonna be something that's conceptually really hard, let's use either simpler English or or let's what what can I do to lower that language threshold? Exactly. Um so, so and, that's and, something I really like about this model as well. Well, and your manipulation of the sliders, as you say is if you like 
probably will manifest itself as a type of short little bit of activity. That's why you do use the word activity or exercise in order to get back to fulfilling the task that you were trying to do, which you found difficult, as you said, because you went, oh, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> this is going to involve some tricky stuff, you know, so I'm going to break it down. I break it down into components, which might be activities, but I'm still trying to get back to that task level. You know? that, that's what yeah. I'm trying to do. Yeah. Thank you for this. Um, I wrote down three more questions and um, we might just be in touch and or do this again because there's so many things that I think um, and are, are worth sharing. But let's finish up for this one. Thank you again, Fubal, for, for joining uh, uh, this episode of the Clil podcast and um, we'll see you around. Yeah, thank you very much, Patrick. Yeah, great to talk to you. No worries. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> and that was the end of the very first special episode um, of the Clil podcast for teachers and teams. Thank you for listening. I hope you appreciated it. I hope you liked it. Phil um, knows so many things related to Clil. We kept him so for 20 more minutes after the recording about a lot of other different topics. Um, I really appreciated him taking the time to talk about this. And I hope you appreciated what he shared. Um, look forward to hearing from you what you felt in this episode. Um, take away something useful from this. Good luck with your clear lessons. And I hope to see you around during the next episodes. Thank you.